Daniel Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today I'm going to talk to fiction writer Lorraine M. Lopez. She just came out with a brand new book called Postcards from the Gerund State. It's a collection of stories and it is fantastic. Like her previous books, her first book was called La Soy La Avon Lady and Other Stories. Is that a great title? I love that title. And also The Homicide Survivor's Picnic and uh, multiple uh, books of fiction. I lost count at some point. I've been reading her ever since her first book, and I'm very excited about this new collection. One of the things that um, I'm always telling my students, who may not be aware of this, but who maybe sensed it on some fundamental level, is that a character in fiction has no depth if they do not have desire. They must have desire. They must have need. They must have yearning because character, desire, character yearning is what directs the motion of a story. Without that, all you have is plot. And a plot devoid of character means you're not going to care about the characters much. You're just going to say, oh, that's a neat story. Um, That is... The secret, or one of the secrets, I should say, and maybe secret isn't the right way to say it, maybe one of the the elegant equations that makes literary fiction beautiful and makes it fundamental and, and allows us to connect. The fact that the plot grows out of the character's need, the character's desire. And when that character desires something or needs something, but they're not even aware of it, the irony, the possible ironic uh, twists and turns in the in the plot and the narrative structure and the narrative drive are just tremendous. You can go so deeply into a character, uh, and that's what she does. Her character Lucinda in this new book is somebody you not only get to know, but sometimes you like her, sometimes you don't, sometimes you worry about her, and uh, she's like a, she's like a friend or a family member, even more specifically. So let's talk to Lorraine M. Lopez. Lorraine Lopez, welcome back to Words on a Wire. Thank you for having me back. I really appreciate this. I think the last time we talked uh, was when your novel, The Darling, came out. Uh, when was that? That was about four or five years ago, I'm thinking. And and is this new book, uh, Postcards from the Jaren State uh, Stories, is this... Um, the book directly after that, or was there one in between? It is the book right after that, and and it came out um, fall 2019. Wow. So a year ago, came out a year a ago. A year already, my God. You know, yeah. it's like 2020, as horrible as it's been, it's gone by so fast that sometimes I still think I'm in 2019. <laughs> it does seem that way. Like we're having this Rumpelstiltskin experience of just, you know, shutting down and waiting for time to resume when we when when this ends. And did you get a chance to take the to, to do a book tour before um before the uh pandemic struck? No, no, not at all. In fact, the book came out I was in Europe and I was on a research trip and I returned just before the pandemic started. Wow. So I didn't I mean the only event I've done was the one with you at MTSU. Wow, yeah, that was about what a month or so ago. Yeah, that's right. same with me when when Kafka and the Skirt came out, uh, the pandemic started, so I haven't had much of a chance. And it's funny you were in Europe, um and had you stayed maybe a little bit longer, you might still be there in quarantine, <laughs> unable right. to fly. Right. <laughs> yeah, not not a terrible outcome. I mean, not great, but right. it, it might have been interesting. What what country were you in? 
Well, I was in Portugal, Spain. Um, I'm trying to think if I went anywhere else. No, I think just Portugal and Spain. Wow, wow. You know, when um, 9-11 happened so many years ago, I was, I was in Europe. I was in France. And I went to the airport and um, uh, they asked me if I'd be willing to stay an extra day because they had oversold the seats and they were very kind about it. And I said, no, no, I just want to go home. And then 9-11 happened. And uh, I realized um, uh, uh, I would have had to stay in Paris for like a couple of months. And I thought, wow, I should have taken that deal. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I mean, there are... There are worse outcomes than staying in Paris a couple of months. Yeah, yeah, but they're both tragedies. Nine Eleven and this pandemic—it's horrible what's happening, uh-huh. and um, we're uh, we're very um, very fortunate to to be able to to be writers and professors and to be able to get through this, uh, uh, you know, without uh, uh, without too much personal grief, except for those people uh, that we've lost, uh, which right. you know, of course, is immense. Especially here in El Paso, it's horrible here in El Paso right now. My my wife lost her grandfather about three weeks ago to COVID. He went into the hospital, uh-huh. not for COVID, but got it there and died there by himself in ICU. It was very sad. I'm so sorry to hear that. But uh, anyway, I don't mean to <laughs> to, to bring above her. We're, we we want to talk about your book, your 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 new collection of stories, um, uh, postcards from the Jaren State. This is what your fifth, sixth book. So, um, well, it's my actually my tenth. Oh my God! Book. Has it been ten? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm counting the the books that I've edited, and uh-huh. I've done oh. three edited collections, so it's my seventh book of fiction, and Sing, single authored book of fiction. Starting with uh, Soy La Avon Lady and other stories. Right. That was my first book in 2002. Wow. So, yeah. So, so I have to ask you. I, I have. Uh, uh, you know, I've I've been writing for a while. You've been you've been writing for a while. You know, why do you keep doing it? Why? Why? You know, what is this impulse that makes you still? And I'm not even gonna say want to write because my sense is that you need to write. I mean, you have a, you know, a, a very successful career. You're a professor, tenured at uh, Vanderbilt University, a beautiful institution that values you very much. Why do you keep writing? Why do you do it? Well, it. It is It is partly what you say I need to write. It is the thing that I do that helps me order my life or impose a certain order and vision on my life. Um, and it's probably the only thing that I can do is some level of, you know, expertise after practicing <laughs> so many years. And um, it is something that I deeply enjoy doing as well. It's something that I look forward to having days where, mm. where I can feel some time to write. Um, it, is, it is what I love to do. And, I, and the more I do it, the less I care about what happens after I've written a book. I used to be very invested in, um, oh, will it sell? Like, will, it, will people read it? And now I've just become very detached from that, and I just want to write the next book. Well, that sounds, I don't know if that's good or bad. Well, that sounds incredibly liberating, though. It, it is. It is. And I'm just going from project to project and exploring what I'm interested in writing about. Wow. It is It is liberating for that. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good place to be. And I think it's, it, it ultimately shows in your the, the, the work itself, because the work, um, you know, it it uh, there's a uh, 
I, how, how can I put it? There's a love for writing in the work itself. There's almost a, a metafictional aspect to it that is incredibly subtle, but that makes a, a, a commentary on the writing. And in your, in your new book, I'm talking specifically about this passage where these two women uh, are, are talking about writing. And, um, you know, one of them talks about, uh, you know, what is necessary to have characters in fiction. And um, she says, um, uh, the other character says, well, you know, we're not, we're not characters. And, and this isn't fiction. And then the, the writer, the fiction writer, Lucinda, lifts, quote, lifts an eyebrow, a dubious look on her face, almost as if it's winking to the audience, saying, yeah, this is a work of fiction. <laughs> yes. And it, it, I think it's very, um, well, I don't know if it's very common, but it's very common for me to, to kind of think of things in terms of superimpose that the, the idea of fiction onto life. You know, and it's not always a great thing to think about people as characters, but it, it can create empathy. I think when you, if if you are if you are thinking about them as characters, you know they're multifaceted. Right. You know, they're not flat. Right. And uh, uh, Lucinda, who is a fiction writer, in that same conversation says that uh, that a character needs longing. A character has to long for something, something that they want but that can never be attained. Um, can we talk a little bit about that longing, and especially in terms of your characters and your writing process? Sure, absolutely. Uh, um, I think, well, that for me, like for Lucinda, is the first rule of fiction. And I think when when stories in workshop by emerging writers fail, in terms of plot, it's usually a problem of character. Mm-hmm. And it can, and it usually connects to establishing that longing. What is that thing that drives the person or the character? What is that thing that sets them on a trajectory toward toward choice and change? Mm-hmm. That thing that they will undergo obstacles or, or overcome ar- obstacles to achieve. So that's, for me, I think, when and, and in life, one of the things that I find most interesting about people is what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how longing is a paradoxical thing that, for example, the idea of belonging and being free, you can want two things that are that are uh, oppositional at the same time. You want to be part of something, but you also want to be apart from things. You want both. And that would be a, a good longing to pursue for a character. <laughs> yeah. It, you want those. I'm sorry. Oh, and, and, and I think, too, also, I also think about how people lie to themselves, and characters will lie to themselves about what they want, thinking, well, I really want this. I want this relationship, mm-hmm. or I want this job. And it is exactly the thing that they don't want. <laughs> right. <laughs> and isn't that where irony comes into fiction, when a character thinks they want something, or lies to themselves about wanting something when they really need is probably something quite opposite. Right, right. Or they want to be wanting something. Mm. Once they achieve what they've, what they've wanted, great dismay fills the character because there's nothing more to want and some, something has to go into that vacuum. You know, I just finished reading uh, 
uh, a book by Yuval Noah Harari, his book Sapiens. And uh, what, there was a line that really struck me. He says, the, the question that we need to ask ourselves is not so much what do we want to be, but what do we want to want? Mm. Uh, yeah, I like that idea a lot. Yeah, and uh, you know, your characters, one of the things I'm incredibly impressed about in this in this new book, and I guess I've continually been uh, impressed about uh, your work in, 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 in these terms, is your characters are so complex, and they clearly have, each one of them clearly has this very, very, very deep longing that can never be satisfied. Um, but there's a lot of characters in this. You have at least, I think, uh, uh, five or so uh, main characters, all women, artists and, and, and writers. But all these women definitely have uh, uh, deep desire. And the character Leia at one point asks Lucinda, the fiction writer, how do you keep track of all those characters? How do you keep track of them? Uh, and I couldn't help but think of that as a, as a question to you, Lorraine. How do you keep track of so many complex characters with so many backstories? Do you, do you write a graph? I mean, how do you keep track of all these? You're, you amazingly pull off five, I, I think it's five characters with such, such detail and such realistic characterization. Well, thank you. I sometimes wonder if I, if I achieve that or if I just create this chaos on the page. But no, I don't. I don't keep track. I, I do keep track of numeric things like dates and mm. ages. I do have to write that, graph that out because numbers confuse me, always. But with characters, um, it would be for me. It would be like confusing your family members. Oh, that's would, nice. <laughs> like like um, thinking your brother wants what your sister wants, right. or your your um, uncle is allergic to what your nephews allergic you know th those kinds of things they're easy to keep straight because they are like family mm. to me and they they um and i live with them in fact more closely than i live with my family now my my siblings say mm -hmm. so i know my characters better and it is true that in, for readers as well i've read that you know characters better than you know people because you can never know what people are thinking but you can read about a character's interiority, mm -hmm. so we become very close to characters, uh, and in some and in some ways, my characters are closer to me than the people that I know. In many ways, I guess because I know my characters' thoughts, I know what they want, I know what they mean when they're lying, and we're not always privy <laughs> to that information right. with, with people that we know. But yeah, I'm, and it is kind of a the way that the brain works. I, for example, I cannot retain a number. I cannot retain. <laughs> you could tell me two numbers, and then two minutes later ask me what those numbers are, and I'll have no idea. But um, there is something about the way that my brain works that I remember narratives and I remember characters. Wow. And you do spend yeah. a lot of time. We do spend a lot of time with these characters. We'll spend a time with them as they're sitting in a diner or as they're taking a walk or as they're having dinner together. And yeah, you do kind of feel like you're part, like you're, um, you're, you're, you're participating in life with them. And that's what I really love about this book. And one of the, one of the things that really struck me is the frame of the book for lack of better word, but you have the first story, which is these women staying together in the summer program at, uh, at, at the college where they teach um, 
and it's almost they have to be in the dorm and the food is horrible and they don't really have access much to the outside world, maybe an occasional night out and it's very claustrophobic, but uh, they're all put together. And this is an omniscient narrator. And then at the end of the, the book, you also have those women together again, this time at a, at a retreat, which is supposed to be much more you know, uh, luxurious and, and desirable, but yet still there's that claustrophobic feeling, putting these women together. And then in the middle are all the stories, sometimes, uh, you know, following uh, the different characters. Did you plan this, this structure of the book? And, or did it just kind of come about as you were working on it? That's such a great question. Thank you for asking that. I had very deliberately planned to have it be an untelling, which would be, I'm, I'm very fascinated by reverse order um, stories, and I just writ- wrote one that came out in Michigan Quarterly, um, and I was very proud of you know doing this story backwards. <laughs> Each section is temporally, is chronologically um, after or before the one that precedes it. So it goes from say Thanksgiving Day to the day before Thanksgiving to the day before that. Mm-hmm. You know, in the in the telling of it, it's a, an undoing, and that's what I wanted. But the problem was that. Uh, the the first story, the the Burn Bra Surprise, provided such a good introduction to all the characters mm. in an omniscient way that I that I had to start there. Right. But it but loosely speaking, it is kind of working as an untelling. But there are a lot of lapses. I couldn't quite pull it off because um, then when I was ordering the stories, I thought, wow, this one speaks to this one, so I need to have that there. So you always knew it was going to be a collection of stories. There was never a time when you thought it might be a novel. Actually, it all it all began with um, pa- compassionate wait, wait wait passionate delicacy. That's I changed <laughs> the title so it, it's confusing. Passionate delicacy was the first story that I wrote, mm. and that appeared in um, Homicide Survivors Picnic. I was always fond of that story. Mm. And I thought that I could do much more with these characters. So that's the first thing. And then I wanted to write a novella just because I had taught a novella workshop at mm. um, a graduate seminar, and it was so widely popular. And, I mean, I had three people come out with books from that wow. from that <laughs> workshop. Yeah, it was really amazing. So I thought, well, why can't I write a novella? You know, I shouldn't be teaching this unless I'm writing it. And so I wrote the novella. Actually wrote it at a residency where I was going to work on the Darling, but this annoying woman. Kept <laughs> me. Oh my God! I was going to ask you about that annoying woman. <laughs> yeah. And so that was—that's so, the last story in the book, which really is the longest story, I believe, right? I mean, yeah, it's an, it is a novella. So, um, yeah, I I wrote that right after uh, Passionate Delicacy, and then found I couldn't do anything with it on its own. I would need another novella to put it in a book. And I really didn't like the standalone novellas that I'd seen published too much. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I have to write the rest of the story. Wow. And um, one of the details is that uh, these women teach at a small women's college called Burnbra. <laughs> it's not yeah. spelled that way, but the, mar- the narrator makes it clear that that's how it's pronounced. And, you know, obviously the reader's going to think about the symbol of the women's movement and burning the bras as a symbolic act. And uh, I'm wondering what that 
meant to you, what it means to you? Or is it a, is it, is it a, a nod, a wink? Uh, talk about that a bit. Yeah, I liked the, the irony of um, making up this word for this college to describe this process of refining um, raw material to make it into precious metal. I like that mm. idea. Um, which is sounds like an alchemist. <laughs> yeah. Are you into right. alchemy, Lorraine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, and that was the, what the founders had in mind. You mm. know, we're going to take these raw material yeah. young women and make them into precious metal. Um, but then they they come upon this name back in the late 1800s when the school founded that has no connection. You know, doesn't have any wouldn't in any way be connected to to the idea of burning a bra. So they were fine with calling it burn bra, mm-hmm. and and uh, yet the women who teach there feel the irony very keenly when they see that the that the school is run by by um, you know a- ancient white men who appoint as the president a terribly offensive <laughs> man makes a, an a awful sexist comment in his in his speech. So they they feel that irony quite keenly and and resentfully um so yeah that's that's kind of where that that idea came from and i liked i liked calling it burn bra and having the women have to have to say burn bra all the time (laughs) when it is yet the opposite of of that symbol of of liberation i'm really interested in your process when you write and i'm wondering uh did that burn bra title come as you were making revisions or did it just come out in the language on the first draft it you know initially i had called it bunting i wanted to call bunting. it bunting because i wanted this idea of being like a little baby uh-huh. uh, in bunting. but um then i, I realized oh there is an institute you know that's quite well known and i don't you know cast aspersions on that institution that is yeah. very you know respectable so um i had to cast about for another name and um that came to me <laughs> Burnbra, i guess right. and i like i like that i changed it yeah no i think it, i think it's, it's fantastic the first story is called the burn bra surprise and it again takes place at this summer institute at the college where these women have just you know some of them just barely got jobs there and you know, seem to be very grateful that they have a job, but the job doesn't turn out to be as prestigious as they thought it would. They thought they were going to be, you know, at an R1 institution, and it turns out that they're, you know, that there's a lot more challenges, a lot more composition classes Lucinda has to teach. And there's this ever omniscient uh, uh, kind of uh, fear about your job, about their jobs, about is it going to last? Is it going to, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, right. Are, you know, and I'm wondering, you know, who you're speaking to or or who you're speaking for uh, when you when you have characters that are rooted in this system that has complete, often disrespect for writers and artists, and and give them the worst schedules and all these surprise uh, commitments that they didn't know that they were going to have being a professor and not even time to do their work, uh, except in that uh, <laughs> Wyoming. Retreat, and I wonder, yeah, who are you talking to here? Who are you? Whose story are you telling? Well, I guess it, it is. It is. You know, there there are elements of lived experience. One of my first jobs was uh, in a, in a non R one 
university with a 5-4 teaching load. Wow. Um, <laughs> and so I knew that grind. Uh-huh. And then, and I could see what it what it was doing to people, how it was so discouraging, and also experienced the the low pay alongside of the anxiety about losing the job. I had seen people terminated from this job for having same sex partners. Wow. So they, they, it was a very fearful, um, unpleasant place to be, and yet it is. And it is considered an elite profession to be a college professor, but um, it isn't always the case. Um, so that was that. That was the what was informing mm-hmm. my writing of it was my lived experience. But as to who I'm writing to, um, I, I I don't really have a sense of who that would be. Mm-hmm. Maybe just readers at large who want to read a humorous, <laughs> I guess I'm hoping a humorous, uh, I, I had intended it as a campus comedy, and there's a great tradition of All campus right. comedy, and I said, said when I set out to do this, I read I read a lot of campus comedies, and I love them so much, wow. so um, I guess I'm, I'm writing to the campus comedy reader. Right, right. Uh, I can't help but thinking about, you know, when I first started teaching, that that was, you know, I was... Uh, community college and um uh and just yeah it, a lot of the the experience that these women have at their at their college uh certainly resonated with me you know when i was when i was in that position and it, and it is it's 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 very funny <laughs> but sad especially when you think about the part-timers who are just want to have jobs like lucinda has but you know they're treated even worse it's it's uh, right right yeah so when you write, I'm thinking of your character um, on um, your, your, your last book, um, uh, The Darlings. Uh, she was a professor as well, I believe, or uh, a student of literature. And then Lucinda, who could be, it could be argued that Lucinda is the anchor character in this entire collection, although it does, you know, go to, you know, tell everybody's story, really, and it belongs to everybody. But I'm wondering if... Um, if there are similarities between Lucinda and, uh, uh, um, uh, I forget the the name main character of Darlene. So what, what was? Her? Yeah, are, are there are there similarities between them? Are are they in, in the voice perhaps, or in you know, are are there how are these characters related, if if in any way at all? Yeah, I I think Caridad um, is not as funny. As <laughs> And and in in some ways, uh, Caridad is a little more um, vulnerable mm-hmm. because I see humor as a self-protective uh, device that people use. So um, so she she's a little more mm, trusting, I mm-hmm. think, of people. And she, but Lucinda is armored with humor. Yeah. Lucinda's first reaction to anything is going to be to snort, you know, <laughs> derisively. So. Um, and I really do love Lucinda. She's one of my favorite characters. And I will tell you my next next project because I just written. I have a I have a book um, about the mission about the missions mm. that is with my agent. And I have a, a book of that is a YA um, science fiction book. So that I'm I'm working on. I'm I'm finished with the full draft. 
revising and editing that, but I'm taking notes for my next, next, next <laughs> <Wow>. book, <laughs> is, um, which is titled, working title, Lucinda, and it's all oh. about Lucinda. Lucinda's going to go to an R1 university. Oh my God, she deserves it. She works she's hard. Get into <laughs> lots of trouble there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's, there's this. You know, talk about character depth. Lucinda, you know, is, uh, you know, a character who we're pretty much rooting for uh, most of the time. But then there's this complexity at the end of the book that kind of makes you, and her, question her own, her own faults and her own personalities, and and that just really kind of made made her a lot more, uh, you know, real. I guess you can say. You know what I love most about characters, whether whether it's in in, in literature or film, or um, or really great TV. Um, I love when characters are dynamic, mm. where they they change. They start out one way and they become another. Right. And this is what I was after on How Successful with Lucinda. She's she becomes she's an she's an abused woman who fears becoming abusive herself and controlling and mm, punishing right. herself. And even though she fears it, it's happening to her. Wow. So, but she's trying, and that's what I love about her. She's, she's trying to catch herself and, and correct, not always successfully. Right. And talk about but her. Oh, sorry. I was going to say her form of abuse is not physical or psychological. It's just verbal. Right. She's just making fun of everything. She's very good at subtle uses of uh, aggressive language. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's, I guess, would be the uh, passive-aggressive poster child, maybe. Uh, you know, um, uh, one of the things that... Um, uh, that I, you know, as you're talking, I can't help but think of that. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, longing and irony. That uh, the very last story, you know, Lucinda wants to get away from Leia. Leia is incredibly irritating, there, and that's objective. She's objectively irritating. Um, she wants to get away from her, but probably on some other deeper metaphorical or character level, she needed to be locked up in that place with Leia because it, it, it allowed her to confront a part of herself that I don't think she's very comfortable otherwise confronting. Right. It it was a chance to see herself. And I think I have that passage as if in a funhouse mirror, <laughs> you know, distorted, but there, that, yeah. that controlling person. So let's get back to the process of writing. I know you, you know, I don't know how fast you write. Do you write and uh, fast and then revise slowly? Or do you do like, won't go on to the next sentence until it's exactly the way you want? Well, it is, it is a real, uh, writing for me is a very recursive uh, process. So I am a fast writer. I know that. I burn out my peer readers routinely. <laughs> so I have to have, I have to have a roster of them because I don't wow. want to ever give them work that they're not... I'm, I don't ever want them to be reading for me if I'm not reading for them. Wow. And and they're not that fast sometimes. And they're great. They're great. It's just I'm, I'm not a perfectionist, I don't think. Mm. But I do... It is true, you know, when you start out writing, maybe you spend 80% of your writing time drafting new material when you're a new writer mm-hmm. and 20% revising. Well, that, over time, that shifts. So now I spend about 20% drafting new material, 80% revising. 
revising wow. and editing. And I will do it over and over and over. I will go over things again and again and again. And still I find problems. Wow. I always find problems. Absolutely. That's that. That's that's exactly what I do too. I could go through a a, a draft of a book in four months, but then I spend three four years revising it. Sometimes having right. to let it go for a while. And right. uh, and I'm thinking about uh, there's this you know when Lucinda and another character um, take walks um, in in Wyoming, you know where they're they're uh, on that uh, that artist uh, retreat or residency. Um, there's this truck that always passes by, they always, and and this really irritating hound dog that 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 barks at them and scares them every time, and you can't help but think of this as a motif or something with metaphorical possibilities because it keeps coming back, uh, almost like the, the 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 bearded teenager in the first story. These motifs that keep coming back, and I'm wondering at what point in the writing process these images become part of the, 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 the meaning of the piece? Uh, do they just appear and then they appear again and then you know they mean something? Or uh, how does that work? Yeah, it is. It, it, for me, um, metaphor, symbol, they emerge. It, it's just the thing that my subconscious coughs up, mm -hmm. you know, and there it is on the page. And, and then I go through this calibration process where with the dog in particular, um, I wasn't sure what the dog meant, and I love that when I'm not sure. Oh, what absolutely! <laughs> and uh, I continued to work with it, and I saw how the dog was connecting to 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 Leia, to be that person who's who's always mm, intruding right. and and kind of saying barking, notice me, notice me, doing that same disruptive behavior. And then and then I began to think of the dog a little bit differently. <laughs> the dog was a bit like Lucinda, and and you might find this interesting or not, um, but I had this, then with the calibration process, then I went overboard the other way, where I wrote a whole, I would say five pages about the dog, where they come across the dog and um, one more time, and they meet someone who's working in Wyoming, a woman who's working on her son's ranch, and she tells them that the dog is a champion herder who's going to, to um, Sheridan wow. for the finals, you uh -huh. know. And so I, I'd, I'd done all this research about herding dogs, and they do have these contests and awards. And so I created this elite herding dog who became like Lucinda, that person who wants everyone to behave and mm. you know, snips at you if you, you know, and she's having a hard time with Leah who won't fall into line. And then I just said, oh, get over yourself, Lorraine. Take it out. Oh, that's, that's fantastic, because the temptation to, to leave it in would have been more about you and less about the book. Right, and it would, have been, it would have been to take what is a nice, subtle, it means what you want it to mean, right. dear reader, moment, and muscling it to become this over-labored thing. So. Right. And that that would certainly that would certainly make the image and uh, uh, a little bit more superficial and the metaphorical possibilities a lot less. Right. It was very heavy-handed, and and I took it out. <laughs> that, well, that, see, you're you're a master of your craft because you know as I was looking at this whore, at this this dog and the truck, I began to you know unconsciously, of course. Uh, uh, think of metaphorical possibilities. And one of them was just the landscape itself within which these women have to work, you know, working at a university where 
the new president is clearly a misogynist, uh, yet it's supposed to be a woman's college and, you know, and it's supposed to have the burn bra tradition, yet at the same time, it's, it's a very, uh, like this masculine image of a dog barking, always, always reminding them that you have something to be afraid of. So, yeah, that, that's, that's just what came to I me like the first that. time. But I imagine that those people who study your book are going to find so many wonderful opportunities to go deeply into this text and to create, um, uh, you know, wonderful connections. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful book. And I always tell my students, if you have characters that really have this longing that cannot be satisfied and, you know, often, even if they don't know what that longing is, or maybe even, you know, more so they don't know that longing uh, is that the landscape itself becomes full of depth. So every image in this book because it's rooted in character desire is is you can you can spend a hundred years going subtextually into this book <laughs> wow well thank you very much so i had to ask you we did a reading uh, not too long ago in tennessee you showed up but uh you know things are really bad here in terms of the pandemic and at the time things were bad in tennessee and the pandemic but um so i didn't want to risk flying and uh, leaving my family. I have a 20-month-year-old who's, by the way, whose name is Lucinda. Um, (laughs) But uh, so I ended up going virtually and you were there uh, physically. But uh, in this answer answer question, you brought up this science fiction YA novel. Lorraine, what craziness is this? Why? (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Well, I just wanted to... to, um, I just wanted to do, it was just something I was playing with, and then it became a, a thing that I couldn't put down and I couldn't walk away from. And I don't even remember why I was playing with it, but it is it is an autobiographical, it's autobiographical too. <laughs> that too. <laughs> autobiographical science fiction YA novel, and it's told from the perspective of my sister. Wow. Your real so, sister. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so, and I've told her about it, and she's fine with that. Wow. <laughs> well, and and has that got has that uh, been sent to your agent yet? No, I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to the winter breaks. So I did finish a full draft once the pan. It, I wrote it during the pandemic. I started it in wow. as the pandemic started, and I became you know confined to the home, and um, I finished it. Be, right before the semester started, so now I need to go through it and make it make it work. My, my mm. husband's read it, and he thinks it's one of the best things I've written because I think it has a lot of plot going on, and wow. he, he likes plot. <laughs> right, many readers do. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you 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 said that uh, earlier. You referred to you know when you you, you know you you're so you write a lot um, very quickly and that you give a, a manuscript to one of your reading groups. And can you talk a little bit about those reading groups? Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're friends of mine from various um, stages of, of my life as a writer. Uh, for instance, one of the first things that happened when I got the job here at Vanderbilt was that I went to the Sewanee Writers Conference, and I met a woman there uh, named Lynn Pruitt, and she, was, she, she and I had our first books out at the same time, and we became very close friends. Another friend of mine, Terry Jones, says, the value of a writing conference is not going to hear the big muckety-muck writer read or 
uh, or networking with agents. The real value is the friendship mm. that you make right. with another writer who's at your level. Wow. And and that certainly has proved true for me. So she's one of my um, my readers. Another is um, Teresa Duvalpage, who's a Cuban-American author. Um, and she, she and I met at a, we did an event in, uh, we were both had our first book out. We did an event together. So we've been friends for many, many years. And she's, she's, she actually gives me a run for my money with the right. She's pretty prolific herself. So um, she, she keeps up with me. Wow. A lot. Uh, that's, that, that's, that's great that you have that kind of support. Uh, and I think, you know, it's necessary uh, in, in, you know, before you send it to your publisher to have at least one person read it, if not uh, several people that you can trust. Um, yeah, it is. It is. It, they're they're just. I don't know what I would do without them. Right. Well, uh, the name of the book is "Postcards from the Gerund State," and I love when that comes up. Uh, what is meant by "postcards from the Gerund State"? I'm not going to tell people because I think they should read the book themselves and find out. But it's 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 very funny and uh, um, and it's uh, it's it's a fantastic book. Um, Congratulations! And uh, when is your next yeah. book coming out? Oh gosh, I don't know. Oh. With, with the pandemic, my agent has had it for months wow. now, and I don't think there's a lot of movement, yeah, publishing-wise right now. Yeah, it's really tough but, right now. Well, when it is, I uh, hope we can get you on the show again. Thank you for joining us, and and I wish you the best with this beautiful, beautiful book. Well, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for this important work that you do. You're you're a hero of mine. This is. This is such a great program that you do, and you're you're really wonderful to run it. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. I'd like to thank Lorraine M. Lopez for joining me on Words on a Wire. Uh, Don't forget, buy books. No matter what you do today, make sure you take time to get on your device or to walk into a bookstore and buy a book. I know it's kind of hard right now during the pandemic to walk into a bookstore, and I would rather you do that than order online, but the important thing is to buy books. Support the literary culture. Support the survival of our literatures. I'm Daniel Chacon. Talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.